thank you for downloading the Engineering Commons. It's been a good long while since our last episode. For that, I must apologize. A busy work schedule has been the main culprit, but we intend to move forward and continue producing episodes. And in the conversation you're about to hear, we discuss how engineers can determine their circle of competence. Along the way, we discuss unicorn science and engineering society alliance and moving beyond recipe reliance. The Engineering Commons explores challenges encountered by engineers, regardless of field or industry. Join Adam, Brian, Carmen, and Jeff as they discuss issues of interest to today's engineering professional. This is episode 136, Circle of Competence, September 27th, 2017. So, Brian, do you feel competent as an engineer? Only in so much as my last failure has uh, left my memory. <laughs> All right. And, and were failures important in you becoming competent? I think they're the only way you learn. Hmm. I don't know. Do you actually learn anything from success? No. Yeah. Only from failure. Were you competent before the failure then? That's a good question. Maybe competency is how you respond to the failure. Hmm. I tend to like to run around the room with my arms in the air screaming, we're all going to die. <laughs> uh, does that instill confidence in your uh, workmates? Uh, maybe it motivates them. To leave the room quickly? Mm-hmm. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> right. And so now that you're uh, competent as an engineer – that, of course, would be limited to some field of engineering, would it not? You'd not consider yourself perhaps uh, competent in uh, chemical reactions? Uh, you mean unicorn science? No. Unicorn science, right. No. I, I, I don't know anything about that. I do watch quite a few videos on, you know, making tictures and potions on, uh, uh, what is it, Nerd Rage? He's a great guy on YouTube that does chemical reactions, and I aspire to do chemical reactions, but that's... <laughs> Outside of etching circuit boards in my garage and then clandestinely getting rid of the acid, the ferric acid, I don't, I don't know that I uh, consider myself competent in that. Never too late to start. No, no. Just start mixing everything under the sink right now. I did do that in once in high school. That was called mix everything in the lab day. It was fun, destructive but fun. I don't think I ever did that. Mm-hmm. But uh, well, now, now, who is the? Uh who, who's the engineer that is your favorite uh, on the electrical side on YouTube? Was that something boom? Oh, electro boom? Electro boom? Yeah, electro the most boom, shot, yeah. the most electrocuted engineer on YouTube. <laughs> no, we should get him as a guest. Thanks for volunteering yourself. I should. I'll reach out to him. But no, I, I, I think what you're getting at here is that uh, my competence is limited to a very small curvature-derived uh, geometry term. Hmm. In search for the right, uh, say, geometric shape, you might call it a circle of competence. I was going to go with the ellipse, but <laughs> isn't a circle just any, just a kind of ellipse? Yes. Where the nodes happen to be in the same spot? Yeah, it's a more symmetric ellipse. Yes. Yeah, so I, 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 be I believe my ellipse of confidence is uh, limited primarily to uh, – 
projects I've never done before and firmware and hardware development. Okay. <laughs> right. So th- this term uh, has been used, but not in uh, so much in engineering circles, the, uh, the circle of competence. And so we're not, I'm not saying confidence. We may be very confident about what we're doing, but the question is whether we're competent at what we're doing. The circle of competence uh, concept was introduced by Warren Buffett, uh, the great investor, uh, to caution other investors about sticking to business fields that they knew well. The idea that you don't want to just go investing in a business because somebody's hawking it on TV as being the greatest thing since sliced bread. Uh, you need to stick to those things you really know so you can evaluate, uh, is this a good business concept? And in fact, uh, the uh, paper, the the newsletter that he sent that had uh, introduced this term, uh, he said, what an investor needs is the ability to correctly evaluate selected businesses. Note that word selected. You don't have to be an expert on every company or even many. You only have to be able to evaluate companies within your circle of competence. The size of that circle is not very important. Knowing its boundaries, however, is vital. As an aside, I'd like to recommend that all the engineers in our audience read up on Warren Buffett. He's kind of the engineer's investor in that uh, often when you listen to investors talk or uh, in the derogatory sense, stock picking monkeys talk about uh, (laughs) um, how they pick the random symbols that they pick in the market – Often it's loaded with a bunch of BS and voodoo and, wow, I know I got a, I had a gut feeling, you know, I, I felt the market was going this way. Whereas Warren Buffett very much sounds like he's building a bridge and, you know, he, he wants to know that he has design margin in the investments that he makes. And, uh, he believes in things like, you know, the true value of a company, you know, that a, the value of a company isn't like the you know how popular it is it's it's a real number that has that you can if you do enough research and you do the right math you can come to a true value and that's also why he's one of the greatest investors of all time and hence he's pretty darn rich yes very good yep <laughs> Yeah. Now I, I heard, and I can't remember what, I think it was a podcast, but maybe it was a radio show I heard in the last week or two that was talking about that unlike the boomers, uh, like myself who turned for many years to stock picking, uh, gurus that, you know, there was the, uh, the Magellan fund led by, uh, was it Peter, was it Peter Lynch? Yeah, I think so. That led that fund. And, and, and so everybody was investing in his fund and, and there was, you know, we had, uh, Celebrity uh, stock fund managers. And so that joy and uh, exuberance about all that uh, has been lost. And uh, so there was this, this radio, either radio show or podcast uh, about uh, millennials not trusting stock pickers at all. And in fact, embracing passive investing, you know, investing yes. with the market, uh, not worrying about trying to beat the market because virtually nobody beats the market over a long period of time. Actually, it's a mathematical fact. It's a mathematical right. fact <laughs> that active fund managers that are performing the market, and that is not investment advice. I'm just stating a summation of uh, several major studies. Right. So anyway, I I, I just thought it was interesting that uh, uh, the millennials may have it right. They've they've uh, gotten wise to this uh, 
fast talk about, you know, how you're going to beat the market every time, every day. Uh, now, some people do, but they usually have an inside <laughs> position that allows them to do that. They cheat or they're Warren Buffett. And, <laughs> and well, it, it, there's a really great thing that he says, which is you're not buying a stock, you're buying a company. You know, whether you buy one share or you buy the entire company, it should be the mm-hmm. exact same activity. And right. so he's not jumping in and out of stocks and, you know, buy, buy, buy or sell, sell, sell. He's, you know, treats every stock purchase he makes like a total acquisition. Yeah. Which, you know, will this thing make me money in the long term? So it was a side over. It's just, it's something I think engineers would really relate to, especially his uh, design margin or margin of error calculations. And, and uh, one of Mr. Buffett's uh, close advisors is Charlie, I think it's Munger. Yep. Is it Munger or Munger? Munger. Munger. So Charlie Munger also has a take on this. Uh, and he says, you have to figure out what your own aptitudes are. If you play games where other people have the aptitudes and you don't, you're going to lose. And that's as close to certain as any prediction that, you, that can be made. You have to figure out where you've got an edge, and you've got to play within your own circle of competence. I'm looking up. There's there's a quote directly from The Art of War about that Sun Tzu, and it's it's mm-hmm. funny because it all it you know it's it, you don't want to say it's ancient wisdom, but it is. <laughs> I mean, it, you know, it's something along the lines of if you know yourself and not the enemy. You for every victory gained, a battle will be lost. If you know yourself and the enemy, you know victory is assured. If you know neither yourself nor the enemy, you will succumb in every battle. Mm-hmm. And it's all about competence, right? So I, again, the the lesson here is that uh, one wants to operate again within your, you know, your circle of competence, the area which with you have understanding, knowledge, expertise. Uh, which all sounds wonderful. How do you find that circle of confidence? Yeah. Exactly. You just grope around in the dark and hope you wind up there someday, I guess. Exactly. And like Brian said earlier, you develop this confidence through making errors. Well, nobody wants to make errors. So how do you keep the errors relatively small so that you don't get fired along the way uh, or you don't uh, cause somebody else harm uh, as you try to develop your own expertise? And more importantly, there's a paradox that will come out of this, which is, you know, the circle of competence will keep you safe, but it will prevent innovation. Yes. So I, so I guess it's how, uh, how tight within that circle you get. If you don't ever go out to the edges, mm-hmm. you'll never extend yourself or the technology. Yep. Damn. So how does one define their circle of competence? Well, I think for, for all of us, it's different, you know? I think a, a good way to start is what you majored in in college. Uh, you know, we have three electrical engineers here and, you know, a Mechie and a civ- civil engineer. Who's who's the third electrical engineer? Dave. He's been here the entire time. Uh, my invisible friend. <laughs> I, I was <laughs> going to say, Carmen did not major in math. I'm still, I'm still, pouring, <laughs> I'm still pouring one out for Chris, our original creator here. Oh, there we yeah, go. Okay. Yeah. He's here we'll in spirit. That. You guys can't feel him on this recording tonight. 
I, I feel his presence every time we record a new episode. That's good. I'm sure he'd like that. <laughs> I'm pretty sure he logs in sometimes. He's checking up on us. Just listens and shakes his head. Yep. Um, yeah. So I, I feel like when you're first getting started, you'd probably identify yourself, you know, through your major, unless you had any sort of prior experience coming in. Mm-hmm. And I, I would say that's a pretty wide circle because I've since narrowed it down to analog electronics and then farther down to power electronics. And then if we want to get even farther down, like not utility scale. <laughs> <laughs> right. But, but so when you graduate with a degree, you go out into industry. I mean, at least if you co-op, you get a little sense of, of, you know, a particular field, but, uh, it's pretty hard to know what you know and what you don't know. Yeah. Yeah. I, I would say it's, it's not really a circle with like definite edges. It's like a fuzzy circle, uh, like a wave function, if you will, if I could be scientific here and fancy. Yeah. Ooh, an airy disc. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So in the in the center where it's nice and concentrated in a bold color, that's your that's your real focus. That's what you know. And then as you branch out from that, it gets fuzzier and fuzzier. But there's still a chance you know something, like a wave function. You could be over there for a second. <laughs> oh, we're going to incorporate quantum effects. Yes, yeah. Yeah. This is too simplistic, your circle model, Jeff. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> I'm sorry. Well, so you had recommended, Carmen, a presentation made by Merlin Mann. Yes, productivity guru Merlin Mann. Uh, talking about the uh, uh, the Dreyfus model. Yeah. Uh, which is a uh, a model to kind of say, well, you know, how skilled are you in a, a particular thing? And, and he's got the levels of novice, advanced beginner, competent, proficient, expert, and I guess some people put master – uh, if that, if you're a teacher to others at the, at that top level, uh, but the hard part is knowing where, where are you on that uh, model? You know, where do you, where do you fit? Yeah, that was a, that was a great talk. I haven't watched it in a little while, but I still remember it quite a bit. And these show notes are helping me, uh, refresh myself. We'll drop it back into the, uh, the show notes for this episode. Cause I think we've brought it up once before. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It, it is a really good talk about, you know, how to get better at something and, you know, how better is elusive. And you start off and you're a novice and, you know, if it's something like cooking, you know, you have to follow the recipe to a T because you don't know how to even begin to deviate. You're afraid to and you don't want your food to turn out like crap because you still have to eat it. Um, and then from there, you know, as you learn, you, you experiment a little more. You've done a few recipes or, you know, built a few circuits or a couple spaghetti bridges or something. <laughs> Uh, <laughs> you're cooking a spaghetti bridge you know i'm trying to relate it back to engineering here oh okay <laughs> uh, you wind up at this advanced beginner stage and according to merlin and the Dreyfus model that is that is the dangerous stage because if that's a uh at that stage you don't even know what you don't know but you have just enough knowledge where you feel like you could be dangerous um yeah so you could start boasting about skills you don't even have and couldn't even begin to talk about competently to someone who's farther along this uh, chain than you are. Yeah, I, I think he mentions that as an advanced beginner, you've had one success, and you, and you think that makes you that is applicable to all other situations, <laughs> and you'll be successful in all the things you uh, you attempt. Yeah, what's that uh, famous saying? When you have a hammer, uh, only have a hammer, every problem looks like a nail. Right. Yeah, that's, uh, you know, you've done like your first internship and you go back to school and you're ready for your senior design thinking you're hot shit and, you know, oh, curveball. <laughs> <laughs> um, oh, man. 
I was thinking you've graduated college and got your first job and yeah, that, that too. Uh, I, I definitely had a little bit of hubris and stuff when I started that, uh, got beat out of me, not because of a terrible workplace culture, but just a good one exposing me to a lot. And I can go, Oh, Oh shit. <laughs> maybe, maybe I shouldn't, uh, you know, talk a good game here. I don't know if I yeah. can back it up just yet. Well, and, and, and so again, the difficulty is knowing where, where you really are, right? You, you don't know when, I guess when you're a novice, you know that you don't know much and you're afraid to assert much because you don't know that. Mm-hmm. But, but once you learn a little bit, you know, how do you know when, you know, you think you've, you, you might be an advanced beginner or maybe you're an expert. How do you know where you are in that range of uh, beginner to expert, especially since it changes all the time, right? Uh, uh, at one point I was using SolidWorks 10 hours a day. All I did was SolidWorks. And then I went off to get my PhD and I didn't touch SolidWorks for 10 years. And so now I, I come back and I try to mess around with do a little SolidWorks and the basic concept is the same, but I'm not proficient in it anymore. I, you know, tr- I'm, I'm struggling trying to find the right, uh, you know, the basic concepts are still there, but I can't find the right buttons and the right key strokes to, to make stuff sing like I used to be able to do it. Uh, and so I've regressed. From- I would say it's a slightly different skill set though. You right, know, it's, it's right, important right, right, to be an engineer, but it's not your main job is to use SolidWorks. It's too. Right. But I, all I'm saying is that, that you know, things are changing all the time. You, you can be an expert in one, you know, yeah. one day you can be an expert and, and weeks or months later, you're no longer an expert in that field because you haven't been tending to, uh, changes in that field. Mm-hmm. And I, I, uh, I'm going to knock Reddit here a little bit as much as I love that site and waste a bunch of time on it. Uh, I, I think you'll see a lot of advanced beginners in Reddit, uh, on Reddit, talking a good game about, uh, you know, various things. And yeah, if you just sit on the Reddit forums all day answering, uh, you know, guys, how do I pick a resistor to light this LED without blowing it up? Yeah, of course you're going to seem like an expert because you're just helping somebody who's, yes, below you, I guess, but uh, on this level of skill but you're not challenging yourself and you know you may have not done anything you you might just be hooking spark fun modules to an arduino and there's plenty of value in that i mean i know i'm not an expert in doing that myself but it's not really groundbreaking there's you can cut a lot of corners that way you're only going to get so deep in uh your field of expertise there if that's what you're trying to specialize in right uh, I have to laugh. Every now and again, I, I see a post, something along the lines that like, hey, guys, I'm not a total uh, noob. You know, I've been messing around with circuits for a while, and I, I think I know what's what. I just need a little help with this schematic here, and they'll post, I don't know, a basic audio circuit or something. And th- their question is, uh, I, I, I know what's going on. I just need to understand what all these resistors and capacitors are doing, mm-hmm. which is the damn circuit. <laughs> Right, you know. Thank you for uh, identifying that the op amp is probably uh, amplifying a signal. That's exactly what they do. <laughs> right. It's uh, yeah, knowing knowing how and why to place all those resistors and capacitors. Those those pesky things. Right. Yeah, I, I would say if you're wondering where you are on the chain and concerned about it and trying to rank yourself, you know, in a good way, healthy competition, not not obsessing. You know that that probably puts you towards the edges of the advanced beginner ready ready to move up. You know, if you know how to ask mm-hmm. the right questions without sounding boastful and whatever, that that's a good a good thing to have. Good skill to have. Right. Don't, don't you wish there was like a 
belt system and so like that exists in some martial arts. <laughs> you mean like a, a six sigma black belt? Yeah. Yeah. So 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 that you didn't worry. You knew, okay, so I'm no longer a beginner. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Or merit badges. Wouldn't that be great? Engineering merit badges. But didn't somebody bring this up? This is somebody else's idea. It sounds like something that's been floated before. Yeah, we can't be the first ones. Well, we've talked about badging and badges, the idea that you could you could do that in order to try to, you know, as an alternate form of accreditation. Mm-hmm. And I think that one one has to sort of be your own master in that sense, as you have to be assessing your own skills uh, as you go go along. Because um, I don't, in many cases, I don't know as your manager is in a position to do that. You know, your manager manager is in a position to say, "Hey, you're meeting the deadline. You're not meeting the deadline. This thing worked mm-hmm. out. It didn't work out." But but oftentimes the the end result is not a direct measure of your competence. Uh, you know, maybe you got lucky and, and a vendor came in and provided the right part at the right time, or maybe, uh, you know, it, it was more supply issue and that, you know, something out of your control made the, the project a success. So your managers may be viewing project success as a proxy for your competence, but that isn't always a, a one-to-one relationship. Mm-hmm. And the other thing I think we have to do is, is in not only assessing our own abilities because we're the, you know, we're the ones that know what's going on inside our head is, is to proceed with a certain amount of, of humility. At, just as soon as you pretend like you know it all, uh, it seems that uh, the world is going to uh, get back at you. The universe will strike back and, and uh, strike you down for uh, having enough uh, uh, hubris to think that you really understand how it works. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Being willing to learn from others, even, you know, if they may not be quote unquote at your level you know if you got a, a phd in something and you're, you're only learning from a master's student or whatever you know they can sell something mm-hmm. to teach you they approach problems different ways um you know you, you shouldn't just turn a blind eye right away yeah and and so uh, in, in your own careers where you know where do you go how do you get better at your field of engineering how do you increase your competence painfully <laughs> Painfully, right? I, I don't know if I'd say painfully, but yeah, you gotta you gotta put the blood, sweat, and tears into it. So, are you actively doing it? I mean, on a daily basis, is what do I have to do to get better today? Or are you thinking about it? You know, once a month. Oh, I should be doing this, or does it? Is it only at the annual review, your yearly review with your manager? How how does that happen? Well, I, getting better or learning new things. Uh, I would say that it's funny. As I get older, I become more wary of learning new things because you learn how difficult it is to learn something new. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, you know, something that was exciting becomes scary. Once you've done it, it's kind of like, uh, you know, like the first time riding the motorcycle was fun and scary. And then, oh, man, I like fun and scary experiences. And then you do one or two more and you're like, okay, I like nor- I like quiet. But uh, <laughs> I think in 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 my career, there's usually three or four opportunities a year to do something that's completely new to me, and it's it's usually mm-hmm. not big things; it's small things, and it's usually never you know I'm not cutting my own ASICs, you know it, it's it's always 
at the heart of it a marginal a marginal change in what I do. Uh, a different kind of a circuit as opposed to a new domain of acting. You know, it's still circuit boards, it's still firmware, but it's it's totally new. Yeah, I, I'm kind of in the same boat now. I'm working on some new circuits, and instead of designing, you know, a, a switching regulator to take this input voltage to that output voltage, and uh, you know, at this current level and everything, I'm kind of doing like some auxiliary circuits, I guess, for them. Where it's still just as mm-hmm. important, but it's uh, it's a little more analog thinking than I've done in a while, and it's kind of cool. I've played with some new topologies and got to prototype again, and you know, I'm gonna write this app note in the next couple months, and I, I hope it comes out like I'm intelligent, but uh, <laughs> you know, I, I think it should. I've I've done my uh, work in the lab so far, and I've got more to do as I cut a board, and I'll, I've studied some sims, so I should be able to back it up. But it, it's interesting going to talk about something that I feel like I don't know very much about, but maybe I've put in more thought than somebody else, and I can still help them. Yeah. And so when you're, you know, when you're extending yourself, how much of that extension is self-imposed and how much is your boss says, I need you to go do this? 50-50. I mean, I, I self-exposed myself. Uh, <laughs> not. I beg your pardon? <laughs> no pun intended there. There's apps for that, Carmen. Yes, yes. I'm, uh, I'm pretty <laughs> famous on certain circles if you, uh, you know, if you want to give me 20 bucks for my Snapchat. But... Uh, <laughs> No, I'll expose myself to new stuff all the time, but I'll I'll kind of hover at that. Uh, I need to gather some more info, so I'll read a lot of app notes. I'll watch a lot of YouTube videos. Maybe you'll mess around in a sim once in a while, but uh, my boss is pretty good about you know kicking me over off the boat into the deep end and uh, saying, "Swim, you can do it. I trust you." So I, right. I kind of need that little push from him to get me going, um, yeah. you know, and and stop spinning my wheels, but. Uh, yeah, it's it's a good mix. Okay, all right. And what about you, Adam? Well, I mean, things are generally just so busy. Um, I end up finding, <laughs> I end up having to do whatever I got to do. So, uh, often you just let me know which bridge was your first one that you weren't sure about, <laughs> so I don't have to drive on that one. If I'm ever coming through uh, the Great North, well, I'll tell him that's why we have uh, safety factors. <laughs> Yeah, but what if he doesn't know even how to estimate the factor of safety? That's what I'm saying. Well, that's why we have senior engineers review the design. I'm just taking a helicopter whenever I go to Minnesota. Yes, yes. <laughs> I don't design bridges. Yeah, that's why I don't want to go on your first one. Well, uh, I haven't designed any, and I don't <laughs> intend to start now. So Okay. Um, so you're good. You're good on bridges. Uh, but, you know, traffic signals? Nope, I know those. I can handle those. But yeah, you, you've got senior engineers. You, you got to go in and try, and um, that senior engineer is there to review your stuff and make sure your errors don't make it out to the public. Um, that's also why we have standards, which uh, are basically senior engineers saying this is how you should do it. Do it this way, and you're probably not going to be in too much trouble. Right. But very risk-averse industry that I work in. I would imagine. So, so that being the case, do you ever get pushed out? Do you think into non-technical things? You know, your your you know public speaking or making presentations or having to deal with uh, you know financial issues. I don't I don't know what what the uh, the external uh, factors are that you might run into. But do you find your do you actively challenge yourself in these other areas? 
maybe not intentionally, but absolutely have to deal with a lot of that stuff. And, and it's always, you're always finding new, new things to have to, to learn about and get better at in those things. At least I do. Um, yeah, I'm in the same boat showing others that I know what I claim to know. Uh huh. I, I don't like to toot my own horn quite a bit, so I have to kind of fake it till I make it. <laughs> you know, and, and the new guy, they don't shove him out in front of that stuff, but eventually, you know, you've been around long enough, been around long enough that, uh, they start expecting you to be able to handle your own at that sort of stuff. And, and so, um, you know, it's a lot easier when you have a safety net than when you're thrown off to the wolves, so yeah. to speak. Um, not that any of our wonderful citizens would be wolves, but. <laughs> yeah. So it's not all about just learning new things, you know, outside your core area. Sometimes it's diving deeper into, you know, what what it is you want to specialize in, whether it's a PhD like you did, Jeff, or Brian and I actually just got back from uh, a week-long crash course in modeling power supplies at Virginia Tech, which was pretty cool. Oh, yes. Neat. Oh, and what was the name of that program? Uh, it's put on by the Center for Power Electronic Systems at Virginia Tech, the CEPUS lab. And mm-hmm. holy crap, there's there's a reason that lab is considered world-class. Watts to megawatts. Oh, neat. Yeah. Yeah. Granted, you know, we've seen it after a 40-year evolution, so I'm sure mm-hmm. it had humble beginnings and it sounded like it did, but... Woo-hoo. They wallpaper with patents. That's that's how crazy they are. <laughs> and, you know, before anyone goes off about the patent system, all the patents they have are totally open for anybody to use. Uh, they're n- not monetizing them at all. <laughs> okay. Thank you, Dr. Lee. Yes. <laughs> he set the precedent, and uh, everyone followed suit Indeed. over some heated battles with the administration. <laughs> but, yeah, uh, this course was... A very deep dive. This was not a, uh, so this is a buck regulator, guys, and this is uh, what happens when the upper MOSFET turns on and then the lower MOSFET. This was, we're assuming you're coming in at, uh, what were those levels there, Jeff? Novice, advanced beginner, competent? Competent, proficient expert. Yeah, this is assuming you're coming in around the proficient level, trying to get to, you know, expert or master um, okay. This was not meant for any sort of beginner, in my opinion. Brian, you can correct me. No, I agree. He, he kind of knew, too, and I, even though we all came in competent or proficient in power electronics, there were a couple times where he stopped and was like, guys, don't worry if this isn't all clicking. Like, this was someone's PhD that worked under me for 10 years. Um, <laughs> it took them a while to get it, too. Right. Or more to the point, it was this control methodology has been used for 30 years and nobody knew how it worked. Yes. You know, we, we just we just completed the models for how this worked last year. Yeah. Yeah. For current mode control of uh, buck regulators. It right. f- came into favor in like the late 70s, early 80s, definitely by the mid 80s. It was being mm-hmm. used and everybody designed extremely conservatively because there were just no models for it. And then mm-hmm. there were some breakthroughs in the 90s, but they were limited. And then, yeah, it wasn't until yeah, 06, 07, 08, something like that. Or, right. or more to the point, there were known instabilities in these designs that nobody could explain until somebody, will say, completed the model and demonstrated that there are inherent instabilities above 50% duty cycle. Or as you 
approach 50% duty cycle. Mm-hmm. Am I getting that right, Carmen? Uh, yeah, for as, about as deep as we could probably dive into this podcast yeah. without sidetracking everything. <laughs> <laughs> well, I know, but, but, but it's interesting. And we talk about competence. You know, oh, yeah. Competence is relative, too. Where, you know, this is a... This is a control methodology that's existed for 30 years. And mm-hmm. it wasn't until probably the past couple of years there was there was a empirical understanding of exactly how it worked. Yeah. Yeah, I think what uh his one PhD student that came out with so there's you, you, in your basic electronic classes, you know, you can model a transistor uh with like some ideal sources that, you know, you can't just go pull off the shelf and solder onto your board. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, it's a couple terminal model of the transistor. You can basically apply that to any switching regulator, uh, DC to DC switching regulator. There's a three terminal model for it. And you can drop this model into any topology and it, it's a intuitive way of thinking about it. And that model came out in the 90s and then it was perfected in like, 20 years later in like 2010 when they finally were to able to put together a unified three terminal terminal model that could model any converter and uh, it was it was really cool stuff watching this guy work through you know the history basically of modeling converters yeah and it's what well, that kind of reminds me there's a book that we may or may not have mentioned before it's called what engineers know and how they know it uh, it sounds familiar and it it was written by Walter Vincenti uh, but it taught it was uh, subtitled analytical studies from aeronautical history. And they talked about how engineers were designing planes uh, based on the feedback they got from the pilots before they had complete models, you know, before they had, you know, they didn't completely understand the airflow and the, and the uh, wing shape design and they were working all this stuff out, but that didn't keep them from designing airplanes. And, and in the same way that uh, it sounds like uh, electrical engineers were able to, to, uh, work on these regulators even before you had, you know, a full, uh, full mathematical model of the system. Yeah. Basically they were able to do, you know, yeah. For, so just to put some names on it, uh, peak current mode control of switching regulators, uh, they were able to go even more advanced than that and do average current control. And that the modeling for that is just, mind exploding. <laughs> but mm-hmm. all these things were being used by industry without full models. You just had right. to do a little bit more conservative of a design and, you know, it, it could still work, but now you're able to push the designs even farther because we could finally model these things. Yeah. And yeah, we me and uh the one guy from TI who was also there, we were trying to talk about you know, who would be kind of like this whole episode, which is, I think, the genesis for it is when do you introduce somebody to a course like this? Because some people had mentioned it and, you know, well, A, there's only a limited budget and B, maybe they're too young to see it yet and young in terms of experience, not age. Right. Because, right. you know, at, during the whole course, you could tell that everybody had been doing power designs and switching designs and you know, had known current mode and could maybe recite like, oh, the inherent instabilities and yada, yada, but couldn't tie it all together and tell you why. And during the week, it was really cool to see everyone's face light up and everybody kind of had their eureka moment that we've had episodes on like, oh, and it it was really cool. I definitely had quite a few of those days. Neat. There's more egregious examples. And again, to the relevancy of, you know, 
of uh, the relative nature of competence. I mean, diodes existed for 50 years, I think, before anyone understood how they worked. Mm-hmm. You know, and, and they were used commercially without – I'm pretty sure that the conduction uh, the conduction modes of diodes were totally unknown or just kind of a black science when they were using uh, cat's whiskers as opposed to when, you mm-hmm. know, formal solid state uh, um, models for uh, band gap conduction were developed. Mm-hmm. So it's you know it's it's not totally uncommon for you know a technology or a system to exist for an extended period of time before people really even understand how it works. Oh yeah, look at all the great ancient monuments and stuff. You think there was any sort of uh, finite element analysis done on that or thermodynamic yes. modeling? Really? <laughs> yes, you know the great fem lab models of Giza. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so yeah sorry jeff how, how much would that throw off modern science if all of a sudden they dig open some ancient tomb and on papyrus scrolls there's like friggin mesh analysis <laughs> of pyramids and shit just pages and pages of matrices that would be cool you know what i'd start buying into aliens a lot more realistically yep. if that happened because that'd be freaking cool one of the things too, as you, as you move up towards that proficient and expert stage, is you you're able to do things more intuitively. You're no longer having to go buy the book, so to speak, or or use the recipe. Uh, and the other thing is, you know, you know the details. You know how to apply stuff. Uh, I don't know if you've had the same experience. I like I I was uh, uh, doing some work uh, on wavelets, uh, which is a it's sort of like a like a Fourier transform. Uh, except that being based in frequency, you're being based uh, in frequency and time both. You're doing scaling in both those. So uh, I don't want to get into all the theory. But but anyway, I was trying to implement some of this stuff, and I'd read several books about wavelet theory, and I kind of understood it. But then came the point where, well, if I really want to understand this, I'm going to write my own code to implement it. And so you can, you know, MATLAB, they have wavelet code, and and uh, Mathematica has wavelet code. And, you know, everybody has their code. You can, But I felt like if I wanted to understand it, you have to write your own code. And there are so many points in there where I could look at the equation in the book, and I'd have several books in front of me and trying to, okay, what, yes, I understand that, you know, that equation, but how do you implement it? What does that really mean? Uh, and some dicey things when, when you come to the, the end of a string of data and exactly what you're supposed to do with the, you know, the sort of leftover bits at the end that didn't nicely <laughs> fit into the, into the powers of two. And so. You assume they're small and get rid of them. Well, you could do that, right? That, that may or may not be unreasonable depending on what you're doing. But again, that starts to become the more, you know, the more proficient, the more expert level. And I guess the point I want to make is that that we sometimes talk about proficient and expert as though it's the wizard that has all knowledge. Uh, but I want to point out that it oftentimes, for, at least for engineering, it's, it's the knowledge applied to something in the physical world. You're actually doing something with that that knowledge, and oftentimes it's the uh, it's the the physical doing where the where the knowledge is is uh, so valuable and so rare. Yeah, I'm I'm kind of in a unique position right now. Um, you know, somewhere in the middle of, uh, you know, this, this tech tree is we're going to, I'm going to call it, you know, <laughs> I'm not, not going to call myself an expert yet. I, 
I do not feel like I've earned that title, but I'm, I'm definitely proficient. And, uh, you know, going to this CPIS course that we talked about and seeing this guy who's been modeling power electronics, and all these PhD students talk about their stuff when we toured the lab and, you know, the sort of things that come second nature to them where I'm just like, holy crap, I would take me a week just to understand like the first two pages of their thesis, let alone their, their dissertation, let alone the whole thing. But then at the same time, we've had a new member start on our team who's completely new to all this and the stuff that he asks that I just realized I've been taking it for granted. It's kind of weird. I'm like turning my head real fast in both directions. Like, wow, <laughs> I don't really know what to make of all this. Hmm. So you had you had mentioned earlier, Brian, the desire for some sort. I think it was Brian that mentioned the desire for maybe some sort of belt, uh, you know, yellow belt, green belt to tell us how effective or competent an engineer was. Yes. To end the crisis of, uh, of our own um, inability to tell our own competence. Right. Right. So so apparently you're not the only one. Uh, it turns out that the – let me make sure I get this right. The American Association of Engineering Societies, AAES. That sounds made up. It's not made up. You can go look at aaes.org uh, slash model. They have an engineering competency model. Ooh. So apparently – uh, they have done this in cooperation with the U.S. Department of Labor, and they have developed an engineering competency model to serve as the guide for the development of the engineering workforce. So I perhaps uh, a good thing, perhaps a bad thing, we're, you know, I don't know, 10 years from now, will we all be judged by how we measure to in comparison to their competency model? Uh, Beats me. We'll have to see. We'll have to see. So, uh, since since our audience is uh, one would assume mostly engineers, those interested in engineers, we thought we'd uh, share the fact that this this model was out there, and it consists of numerous tiers. One can say that could you have like a competency model that was was not very complicated with lots of bells and whistles, and one would say. No competent engineer would design something without lots of bells and whistles. So <laughs> you'd be glad to know that this model is, is sufficiently complicated. All right. So uh, we'll go through the uh, – well, very quickly, we're not going to go deep into this because you'd, you'd all be asleep otherwise. Uh, so tier one, there are, f- there are four main tiers, and then there's a fifth tier for industry section functions. But tier one is personal effectiveness. And so we're supposed to be – Effective, and uh, this group has decided that's dependent upon interpersonal skills, which we've talked about in the past, integrity, which I don't know as we've talked about directly, we've kind of hinted at it, professionalism, however you want to define that, initiative, again, however you want to define that, we each take, I think, initiative in different ways depending on our comfort levels with risk, Uh, adaptability and flexibility, again, however you want to measure that, dependability and reliability, and lifelong learning. So tier one, personal effectiveness. So I, they, they show this at the bottom as the biggest part of the pyramid. So you, I guess you have to have your own act together before you can move on to anything else. I can buy that. <laughs> Are there grooming standards? Uh, yeah, you, your, your sideburns can be no, no further down than below <laughs> the uh, bottom of your earlobe. Hair, t- hair can't touch your collar. Can't touch your collar. That's right. So if you pass tier one, those personal effective competencies, and uh, you can go to 
the aaes.org slash model and get the entire thing. And let me see here for, uh, uh, for personal competencies. I just want to, I just want to read one of these. Okay. So like, uh, interpersonal skills, uh, remember there was, there was tier one. One of those items was interpersonal skills. So, uh, so that was <laughs> to give you a sense of how complicated this thing is. That was, that was one dot one is interpersonal skills. <laughs> so under that, we have one dot one dot one demonstrating sensitivity slash empathy. One dot one dot one dot one show sincere interest in others and their concerns. One dot one dot one dot two demonstrate sensitivity to the needs and feelings of others. One dot one dot one dot three look for ways to help people <laughs> and deliver assistance. Anyway, you get the, right, this shit's never going to catch on. Yeah. Uh, too many steps. <laughs> so anyway, uh, if you want, if you wish to read uh, how engineers may be judged in the future, you can go to that. So that's uh, that's tier one. Uh, tier two is academic competencies. So of course, it's not enough to be a good person uh, and effective in your own personal traits. Uh, you have to be academically competent, and for that, they have reading. I assume that's kind of a basic one, and writing, <laughs> and mathematics, uh, and science and technology, which I guess is good for an engineer. Uh, the one that's that seems to be a problem is communication. Uh, and again, I was at a I was at at an academic retreat uh, for faculty uh, this past week, and again they were harping on uh, the message from industry is that engineers don't know how to communicate. And I don't think that's necessarily true, but they may not they don't always know how to communicate in a way that the rest of the organization communicates. Yeah, that was um, tying it back to. Uh Merlin Mann's talk. Uh-huh. One of the things he you know brings up is all, all these levels from novice up to master. You know they all have blind spots, and sometimes you know about them, sometimes you don't, and that kind of is what separates the good from the bad. And you know when you're at the expert level, you know he, he says like it's like the butcher who can you know just pick up a hunk of meat and say this is three quarters of a pound without being able to explain why or a tailor who could look at you and say, you know, you're a 42 long jacket, but mm-hmm. you know, never take a tape measure to you. But he couldn't tell you how he knows that, you know, that the trick is doing it for so long. Um, and then your blind spot becomes, you don't know how to explain it anymore. Right. Cause it's, sec- it's such second nature to you. It's ingrained. Right. Isn't that like, um, I don't know the right, I, the term that comes to my mind is, is chicken sexer. Is the person who yes. determines the ch- sex of the chicken, and they turn them over, and they can tell you what the sex of the chicken is, but they can't tell you how they know what the sex of the chicken is. Yeah, I think I remember the job training for that was you just stood by a chicken sexer and watched them all day, and they would say, boy, girl, boy, girl, boy, girl, and after a week or whatever the hell it was, you all of a sudden could do that, but you didn't know why. <laughs> so, That's right. So is it osmosis? You, I, you osmosisized yeah. it. You know? Or, or they're, they're only right 50% of the time? No, I think I remember them being right more, but I spent a they while. Get, they get pretty. That, the so the ones that are good are very good at it. <laughs> it's not just random luck. <laughs> yeah. Oh, so so to finish up the academic competencies. In addition to that, we have critical analytical thinking and computer skills. Mm-hmm. So I guess that's you know a general engineering degree will get you there. So now we get into uh, uh, to the next tier is workplace competency. So you're personally effective, you're academically competent. Now, are you competent in the workplace? Um, and so they in this area, they want you to be effective in teamwork, client stakeholder focus, whatever 
they interpret that to be. Too many buzzwords already. I know. Planning and organizing, creative thinking, problem solving, prevention and decision making, seeking and developing opportunities, working with tools and technology, scheduling and coordinating, checking, examining and recording, and business fundamentals. So working with tools, your coworkers or the equipment? <laughs> <laughs> I'm guessing probably for most engineers, software tools, but uh, uh, I guess you can interpret that as you wish. <laughs> and, and, and I'll point out again, you, who's going to be, you, you will not be equally competent in all those areas. I mean, yes, if you focus on planning and, and organizing, you may be very good in that area, but you probably will not be uh, so, so good in maybe, uh, I don't know, checking, examining and recording. So I, it's hard to know. We're all different. We all have different strengths. Anyway, uh, let me let me not uh, stretch this out too long. Tier four, industry-wide. So now if you're good in the workplace, now are you good in the industry? Uh, for that, they have foundations of engineering. Lord, I have no idea what they mean by foundations of engineering. This is the most vaguest list possible. Design. How about that? Most vague list. I'm sorry. My communication skills are shit. <laughs> <laughs> Manufacturing and construction. Operations and maintenance. Professional ethics. Business, legal, and public policy. Broad enough. <laughs> uh, sustainable, sustainability and societal and environmental impact. Engineering economics. Quality control and quality assurance. Safety, health, security, and environment. <sighs> Fortunately, under Tier 5 industry sector functional areas, it currently says competencies to be specified by industry representatives. So... They don't know yet. It's just broad strokes there. It's just engineering, basically, at that point. Yeah. So, um, it's a really crappy pyramid, too. I'm going through the PowerPoint. It's it's a flat top. It got cut off at the top. Yeah, yeah. It doesn't it doesn't come to a point at the top. But I don't know. Kind of interesting, you know. It, yeah. I mean, this has been bought into by I assume since is the I think it needs to be whittled down a bit. But yeah, since is the American uh, Association of Engineering Societies, this has to be. Uh, Oh, who are I don't see who are the members? Uh, let's see who the members of the society are. Oh, it doesn't tell me. It says how you how you have to join as a personal member. <laughs> oh, here we go. Our members. So ABET, uh, AIAA, the Aerospace Committee, AI Chemie, uh, ASME, American Society of Civil Engineering, American Society of Electrical Engineering, Engineering Education, Engineers Without Borders, National Society of Professional Engineers. Uh, it looks like Society of Women Engineers, National Society of Black Engineers, um, Society of American Military Engineers. Looks like most of the uh, most of the engineering societies are on board with this. So, <laughs> sort of interesting. So all this isn't really going to help uh, anybody with imposter syndrome, but <laughs> <laughs> I guess if you're trying to figure out where you stand and you know. The, the grand scheme of things. It, it matters until it doesn't. And, you know, you, you could be humbled and, you know, cocky one day, you know, humbled one day, cocky the next. And, you know, everybody's kind of making it up as they go along. I don't think anyone really knows. No, I don't think so. But as long as you stay curious. Yeah. And so this model may be worth reading just so you remind yourself of skills uh, that others might expect you to have or desire you to have. Uh, give you some sense of things you could work on. Yeah, yeah, definitely. The big thing is to stay curious, always try to learn, and you know, be be humble. <laughs> yeah, and one of the other things that that uh, 
you we can be aware of are our cognitive biases, uh, those things that uh, we think to be true, we feel emotionally must be true, but aren't you know aren't really accurate. And and so one one of the things is this this summer I had uh, uh, I've got some friends that that like to play golf, and so I'd go out and play one round of golf in May, and I'd go out and play two or three rounds of golf with them October. And, uh, uh, I was never any good. I usually had a high score and brought up the rear as far as the standings were, but that was okay. It was time to get together with some friends. Uh, and so this summer I went out and, and, uh, uh, joined a golf league at work. And so, um, one evening a week, they'd go out and play nine holes of golf. And so I did that a little bit and, and, uh, in, inspired me to at least go out to the driving range and try to improve my golf game a little bit. And, those of you that play golf or other sports have, have certainly figured out, but, but I didn't play a lot of sports in, in, in high school or college was that what you feel going on is not what's really going on. You know, where you feel you've moved the club to or how you've moved your hands or how you've done rotation. You can feel something, but it's just not the truth. Uh, now the, the nice thing is we all have video phones or we have cameras on our phones these days. And it's not too hard to set the phone down and take a picture of yourself or do a little video and, and recognize that, oh my goodness, what I thought I was doing, I am not doing. I've got to fix that. Uh, but in the same way, we all, we have these cognitive biases where uh, it just feels, it seems right. It seems true. Uh, it feels, it, it drives our emotions, fuels our emotions. We know this has to be the case, uh, but alas, it's, it's uh, not so. So we had, we had run across a, a page uh, put together on a site called Geek Wrapped, uh, which has buying guides. So I think they're trying to sell things uh, to engineer types, but they've got a page on cognitive biases, which, which uh, suggests a lot. We're not going to go through all of them, but uh, I thought we'd at least uh, go through uh, a few. And, and so I'll start out with one that's called bias blind spot. Uh, and they note that this is one of the most devious biases. We can easily see how biases affect others, but often overlook how much they influence us. After all, we like to see ourselves in a private, a positive light, right? Uh, for example, doctors can underestimate how friendly pharma reps influence their medication prescriptions. Teachers can fool themselves into thinking that grades are only based on objective behavior and not student behavior. And the nice thing about this uh, site is it says how to avoid it. Uh, while confidence is great, try to be honest about how you may be influenced to make irrational decisions. Ask yourself, in what situations have I made a bias call and how did I deceive myself? Carmen, Brian, Adam, any any of the other biases here that, that strike your fancy as, as ones you might have run across? A lot of these I'd never even heard of. <clears throat> and as Jeff pointed out before we recorded, I've been begging to do a podcast just on cognitive bias. But, you know, confirmation biases um, fairly ubiquitous or outcome bias. Yeah, survivorship bias. Yes, too. Uh, we were talking about investing earlier, so I mean that's that's ripe for survivorship bias, you know. And without digging into each one of these, but uh, confirmation bias, I would say, has been pretty prevalent in the past year, regardless of where you are. Where you know we want to hear or we want to see data that confirms our own, you know, preconceptions. And we tend to discount data that doesn't confirm our own preconceptions. Oh, man. Jeff, this is quite a list. 
<laughs> yeah, it's pretty exhaustive. You can scroll for days. Right. So it may be a uh, it may be a material for a future episode. But I thought we'd uh, since we were talking about how you uh, try to uh, gather awareness of your own competency that that this might be uh, something that uh, a few of our listeners might go, like to go take a look at in the meantime. Yeah, I, I'm not sure exactly which one it falls into on here, but when I'm in the lab and I'm not seeing what's going on, you know, it always helps to take a step back and think, you know, is what I expect to happen or assume is happening actually happening and maybe probe a note or two I wasn't looking at before or take an extra measurement just to confirm. Mm-hmm. I think unless you can list the ways in which your own, and, you know, this is purely an electrical engineering statement, your own models and your own measurements can lie to you. It's mm-hmm. really difficult to say that you have an understanding of, um, you can actually account for your own biases. Uh, because otherwise it turns into a Rorschach test of, you know, what you want to see in the data. You know, the data starts to lie to mm-hmm. you and, Everything looks good. You know, this is what I want to see. You know, unless you're in the habit of trying to shoot down your own data. And I'm thinking particularly of confirmation bias here. Um, It can be ruined. What's ruined? No, it can be your ruin. Sorry if I didn't enunciate that correctly. And I know I I had an example in the past year where, uh, you know, Spice has some limitations when it does uh, analysis of inductors. And uh, mm-hmm. there are particular models that you can apply to, um, at least as far as my understanding goes, and this will show the limits of my own understanding with respect to SPICE. But, uh, you know, accounting for... And for those who don't know, SPICE is a an analysis tool that you'd use for uh, evaluating the behavior of a circuit. Mm-hmm. And... Uh, it's a big differential equation solver, if I remember correctly, at the heart of it. <laughs> right. Um, so it, you can, if you're doing a transformer, for example, you, it's very difficult to simultaneously account for saturation of your magnetics and uh, do a coupled uh, inductor, you know, a transformer. So. Normally, you just mm-hmm. treat them as coupled inductors with a coupling coefficient, but as far as I'm aware, that doesn't account for your saturation values. You know, the changes in your magnetic as you begin to apply a field, um, which right. is really important sometimes. Sometimes you can totally neglect it in the models. A lot of times you can't. And I guess you kind of have to decide when you're going to believe your model or not. <laughs> right. So, and so at that point, does it just become a matter of, of you do the best you can, but at some point you've got to make real world measurements? Ah, uh, you treat at least my solution. My solution in the uh, in the fire was to basically treat it like a uh, piecewise function. I knew the model behaved certain ways in certain areas and different ways in different areas. And I changed my analysis when I jumped back and forth between those areas. Mm, okay. And then always relied upon experiment, 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 validate the model, validate the model. 
Right. But, you know, there were plenty of situations early on where, you know, I either wanted to wholesale discount the model or, or discount my experimental results because they disagreed with the model. And, uh, often whichever was the most painful in terms of a redesign, you know, felt really good and got, all, you know, you know, you'd, you'd take an extra really hardcore look at the one, at the options or the uh, potential solutions that required the least amount of work if they happen to be true. Sure. Right. But yeah, I've, I've, uh, I've, I've made this analogy before of when you run into that sort of an engineering problem, it's like, uh, uh, trimming a hedge or trimming a shrub, you know, you, you look at it from one direction and it looks like it's nicely rounded and you've got it from one side, but then you walk around to the backside and it doesn't look, you, you, it's not quite right. So you yep. trim up that side and try to get that side and you go a quarter of the way around. And it's not until you can go all the way around the hedge and it looks right from all sides. Do you really have it taken care of? And I, so many engineering problems, it's like that where you get the, um, you know, the, the form is right, but the, the function isn't quite right. And then, you know, your model isn't agreeing with your experimentation. Mm-hmm. You've got to get the experimentation to agree with the, with the needs of the customer. And, and you've got to keep walking around that shrub over and over and over trying to make sure everything is, is, uh, trimmed up so they all match. And if they don't match, then you've got a problem. And, and it's, it's so often that people want you, you present them with one good view of this. You know, you, the experiments look good and they go, Oh, problem solved. And go, no, 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 no. We don't understand the model yet or the model looks good. Well, we're done. No, no, no. The experimentation still has to take place. So, uh, you've got to be patient enough to make sure you've got it covered from all angles and, and then you can move on. Yeah. And then there's also an art to recognizing when. You know, and uh, you know the class Carmen and I just did is a good example of this. There's there's an art to to understanding when you don't you know enough to be effective, which may not result in complete knowledge of the system. So the current control compensation circuits have existed for thirty years, and if they'd mm-hmm. waited until they fully understood the mathematics behind it, we would just be getting those control schemes you know yeah you know instead we've had effective products delivered for 20 years with people using stopgap solutions if you will yeah and simply acknowledging where their models fell down and staying away from those areas right is is that sort of like the uh the old uh sailing maps that that had areas that would say Mm -hmm. uh, beware there be dragons in this region yeah. Anytime somebody says we're going to linearize something that basically create areas, the boundary conditions dictate that there are dragons all over the place. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. Well, I suppose we should uh, try to wrap this up. And, and in that, uh, that effort, I guess I'll point out uh, one final bias, and that is called the, spot, the spotlight effect. And so the good news is that uh, you may think that everybody is concentrating on on uh, your efforts, uh, and perhaps you're most concerned about them focusing on your mistakes. But according to our our cognitive bias survival guide, the spotlight effect happens when we think other people are noticing us much more than they actually are. We feel that others evaluate our appearance and behavior intensely when it's often not true at all. In other words, we feel in the spotlight. Uh, and so the good news is that uh, we drastically overestimate our effect on others. 
And so it may not be uh, such a big concern. So uh, as we try to develop our expertise and become competent, the good news is is that uh, usually people are not examining our every move and gives us a little wiggle room for uh, trying to experiment and uh, find out our own cognitive and uh, professional limits. Definitely. Stay curious out there, kids. <laughs> <laughs> Excellent. What do you, what do you think? Uh, call this an episode? Book it. think we got it. All right. We'll get together in a couple of weeks and do another episode of the Engineering Commons. All right. Take it easy, guys. Bye. Good evening. The Engineering Commons is produced in affiliation with Big Beacon, a social movement for transforming engineering education. For more information about the podcast you've just heard, please visit theengineeringcommons.com. Our musical introduction is by John Trimble and our concluding theme by Paul Stevenson.